Hey y'all and good morning. Welcome back to Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul. I am your host, Nico Barraza. Before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to remind everyone I work with people in a one-on-one setting, primarily virtual. If you head over to www.nicobarraza.com, you can get some more info about how I work with clients and what I work with clients on in a one-on-one setting. Right now, I'm working with individuals, athletes, and couples from all ages. So go ahead and inquire through my website. Feel free to shoot me an email if you have any more questions or if you want to book a session. I'm also offering um, four-pack package discounts. So feel free to inquire about those if that's something you're interested in. And I have some awesome news. I'm currently working on the first retreat that I'll be putting on, which will happen in fall of 2022. So please keep your eyes and ears open for that. I'm sure I'll be posting about it on social media. Um, Also, I'm working on a new workshop that will take place in March that I will be launching um, sort of pre-sale for in February. I'm not going to tell you too many details yet as I put the pieces together for this workshop, but um, it'll be you know pretty affordable if you uh, you know can't afford working with someone in a one-on-one setting. This might be a great resource for you to sort of develop some some self-awareness skills um, with inside yourself with a couple of sort of key tidbits that I'll be giving uh, throughout these discussions. They'll primarily be in 90-minute um, group Zoom discussions uh, that will break up into smaller groups and sort of continue education and also um, have some take-home homework pieces as well too. So I'm really looking forward to developing that and launching uh, the pre-sale for this course, which will be pretty much a self-awareness course. The pre-sale will happen in February and then the course will actually take place in March, but you will have access to all the course recordings and all the materials uh, for, for, for life. So once you purchase the, the workshop, you'll have access to it um, with all the all the note, notes and all the uh, course recordings and all the stuff we talk about within the actual um, sessions too. So be sure to check that out. And I would love the opportunity to work with you in a one-on-one setting if you uh, feel like I'm someone you align with and you think we can you know, um, work together and you think it'll it'll help your life and your relationship. So feel free to go to www.nicobarraza.com to inquire more about that. And also, real quick before we get into the show, um, if you haven't left us a five-star written review on Apple, please pause the show right now and go do that. We average um, a couple thousands of listeners per show, and we're currently hovering around 70 for the reviews. So we'd love for you guys to leave us reviews. It really helps the show grow. It helps me do my work, helps me get in more people's ears, and of course, grow the lovely and wonderful discussions and conversations we have with these incredible guests that we have on the show. So if you could go to Apple, if you listen through Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star written review. It takes a couple seconds. If you listen through Spotify, please rate us five stars there too. Spotify just recently launched a rating system a couple weeks ago. Um, We have a bunch of people already that have rated us. We'd love some more. Please consider leaving us a Spotify review as well too. So this week's guest is an incredible one. I've been a fan of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies for a couple years now since I first learned of them. They're also known as MAPS. So if you have read any of the recent sort of clinical scientific studies, if you've read up about um, funding uh, around psychedelic research, chances are you've come across MAPS's name. Um, It was founded by Rick Doblin uh, in the 1980s, and he is, of course, a very well-known prominent figure within psychedelic research and advocacy. And the wonderful, brilliant woman that I have on the show today is Natalie Lila Ginsberg, who is the Global Impact Officer at MAPS. Natalie received her BA in history from Yale College and her master's of social work from Columbia University. She currently lives in LA. Natalie is particularly inspired by psychedelics potential role in healing intergenerational trauma and conflict and for inspiring innovative community-driven solutions. 
Natalie founded the policy and advocacy department at MAPS and served as its director for five years. She also initiated and helped develop MAPS's health equity program. Before joining MAPS in 2014, Natalie worked as a policy fellow at the Drug Policy Alliance, where she helped legalize medical cannabis in her home state of New York and worked to end New York's race-based marijuana arrests. Natalie is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant human being. Um, first of all, thank you so much to her for coming on the show, spending an hour or more uh, with me diving deep into psychedelic research, into the different types of psychedelics and where they're showing promise um, to help human beings heal and to work on trauma. Um, we get into sort of every specific psychedelic that you can think of that we you know, define in modern society is, um, you know, contributing to a psychedelic or altered reality experience. Um, so we talk about them in depth. We talk a little bit about the clinical research around um, each specific psychedelic and what, um, you know, things are suggesting or research is suggesting that that uh, shows some promise for things like PTSD, depression, anxiety, and really just dealing with any sort of psychosocial, behavioral, emotional issue as well too. Now, I want to say with a caveat that not at one point in this um, interview do, do Natalie or I uh, say that, you know, psychedelic, uh, taking a psychedelic is going to heal you from all your trauma. That's really not how it works, right? We kind of get into the research and into the anecdotal evidence of, you know, personal experience of, you know, this could potentially, these sort of plant medicines could potentially be a gateway into helping you discover a little bit more about yourself, into um, being able to align with your sort of your true consciousness and to do, you know, the work that you have to do. You have to still do the heavy lifting, but, you know, sometimes psychedelics can allow a gateway to sort of speed up some of of that lifting, if you will. Um, and of course, uh, this show is neither for nor against it. Although I am a proponent of psychedelics and psychedelic research, I want to be clear that I am a proponent of using them in a clinical safe setting. Um, that is currently what the setting is like is being studied, right? Where you're with a therapist or two that have worked with you continuously before you're actually administered a psychedelic and then going from there and having an integration phase and period where you talk about your experience and really use it to sort of help you heal in the best way or help you uh, address the trauma or the intention that you set forth before the experience. Um, and so again, I'm really appreciative of Natalie coming on the show. Um, I've really wanted to have someone to go deep into the science around psychedelics and the advocacy and policy around uh, decriminalization in the U.S. specifically. She is that person. Uh, we have a brilliant conversation. I hope you're looking forward to it. I, I am so pumped um, for you to listen. And as always, uh, I hope you share the show if it resonates with you. If it doesn't, please uh, send me a message too. I'm always curious to hear how people agree with what sits with you, what doesn't sit with you. Um, this is a community of introspection and of analytical thought. And I want to further the discussion, have people open up and, and converse. And um, if this is something you're adamantly against, if uh, you know you were raised in a, in a situation where you know you were thought to you know sort of paint all drugs as being bad, all plant medicines as being bad, I would I would ask you to approach this episode with an open mind and open heart and really listen to the evidence um, that Natalie's talking about that really sort of speaks to the power um, within the, poten the potential, the healing potential behind different psychedelics and where they might be applied and how uh, traditionally over uh, eons we've been using these as, as human beings in, in different parts of our society and our cultures, right? Um, and how that's also shifted over time as we've modernized and come to our, our current state of being in 2022. So happy y'all are here. Please leave us a written review on Apple. Please review us on Spotify. Share the episodes. Help the show grow. So appreciative for all you out there listening. Um, it's been absolutely humbling and a blessing to be able to host these conversations. And I'm so appreciative of all the support, you wonderful people that tune in every week. Um, 
throw out to me. I get a ton of messages and emails just thanking me for the episodes, thanking me for the content I'm putting out. And it is, it is palpable. It is felt. So thank you all for reaching out and sending those lovely messages. And as always, please engage on social media, on Instagram or TikTok or both um, at that Barraza boy. I'll throw the links to the social in the description. Um, if you like a video, please consider liking and commenting on the video instead of sending me a DM. That way it helps the videos go up in the algorithm and more people see them. And, um, you know, it's a little bit of a way that you can give back to if the content's really resonating with you and also share, you know, an interpersonal story if, if you feel inclined to do so, because people really find value in reading other people's comments to see that they're not, they're not experiencing things in a silo, right? Um, that really is where collective healing takes place. So again, appreciate you all out there. And here we go into the show. Natalie Lila Ginsburg, Global Impact Officer with MAPS. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me on Star of the Ego, Feed the Soul. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, you are the Global Impact Officer for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which I've been a huge fan and proponent of for probably a couple of years now since I, I found out about MAPS. And mm-hmm. I know we've been playing back and forth on email for a bit uh, and getting you on the show. And I'm thankful to MAPS and grateful for you to dedicate this time to come on and chat with us all about psychedelics. You've been working in the industry in research uh, for a long time now and also advocacy. And so we're going to talk about a lot of this stuff. And could you start the listeners off real quick by giving us a brief introduction um, about yourself? How did you get into this work? How did you find yourself in this position with MAPS? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, it's been it's great to be able to have this conversation after being in touch in different ways and sharing interesting, you know, pieces of news along the way. Um, So yeah, I've been at MAPS over seven years right now. um, And I got into this work because I, at first I was in social work school and um, I actually thought I wanted to be a therapist at that point. And I was doing work um, with folks who experienced a lot of trauma. Um, I worked at an alternative sentencing court. I worked with people arrested for prostitution. Um, And I worked as a guidance counselor at a Bronx middle school. And I kind of quickly got really frustrated with our approaches to mental health and therapy, which I felt like were so focused on symptom reduction, which, you know, is wonderful. We do deserve to also, you know, reduce our our painful symptoms. Um, But I was frustrated and felt like we weren't really kind of addressing the root source of things. And I also saw that the root source of things, especially um, the folks I was working with, but really with everyone, I see to be really systemic injustice um, and like, you know, seeing the way police officers treated the folks I was working with every day and just seeing this ongoing um, source of trauma that really happened, I saw on a policy level as well. Um, So that actually got me really interested um, in, in policies that I saw that were causing a lot of trauma and I saw pretty quickly with our systems of mass incarceration, um, drug policy was really such a kind of leading edge of driving mass incarceration. And it was enforced in such a racist, um, traumatic way. So um, kind of at that time, I got interested, started working at Drug Policy Alliance um, while I was, you know, as a policy fellow. And in that time, got to work on campaigns decriminalizing marijuana in New York and actually legalizing medical cannabis in New York. But um, in that period, I started learning about MAPS's work and it kind of just connected all of the dots for me in this way. I was like, 
what is, how is this research in like three sessions that's helping people, you know, say they no longer have an addiction or have PTSD. And in social work school, we're being taught, these are illnesses people have their whole lives. You just have to work to mediate it. Um, so to me, I was like, this work really must be addressing kind of the root source of an individual trauma. And then I thought, you know, it really fit into a systemic trauma and like asking us to revisit our systems of drug policy and medicine and all of that. So I know that's kind of all over the place, but really it was this kind of beautiful process. I was really lucky to, to experience kind of one thing to the next um, that led me to MAPS. And, mm. you know, a lot of people at MAPS and in this work are drawn because they themselves have had really healing experiences with psychedelics. So honestly, my road that way is a little, a little unique. Um, but, you know, I've been working in the field for a long time and I have been lucky to have personal experiences in that yeah. in this past, you know, eight years. Um, right. And yeah, and that led me to MAPS. Luckily, Rick, Rick Doblin, our founder and director, um, he it was, you know, eight years ago needed some support on marijuana policy because it was actually harder for us to do our research with marijuana than our MDMA research. Mm. So that's kind of how I first joined MAPS and then ended up starting the policy team at MAPS and worked as the director of policy and advocacy for over six years. And yeah, this year transitioned to work as the global impact officer. Um, I'll, I'll maybe leave it at that for now. <laughs> you know, I was going to ask if you're allowed to talk about your own trips and, and I appreciate you bringing it up because I've spoken about my own experiences, you know, on different episodes of the show. Um, and a lot of folks have reached out asking more questions, you know, just, just mm -hmm. really sort of being interested. And I think there's, um, certainly where we are today and i'd love for you to expand on this as we get into like the policy and research behind what's going on right now um th there's like this thirst and yearning for uh, a reconnection to spirit or a higher purpose and i think if we look at like you know the cyclical nature of humanity there are these periods of of usually like some sort of like plague or famine or, or war or some huge thing which you could even re relate that to covid right now the pandemic and then there's people questioning their purpose like what are they doing what are, what are, how are they giving back to society like what what meaning is their work giving other people how are they helping how are they being of service to others right and therefore because we, we've been told for hundreds of years in the u.s that a hyper individualized self meaning focus on your own monetary worth and value is going to make you happy and now we're starting to figure out that that's bullshit you I know? mean, COVID is a pretty cool indicator of how bullshit that can be, right? Like right. You can have your, your, you just can't, there's no such thing as an individual, not societal response, <laughs> global, even global mm -hmm. response. You know? 100%. Yep, totally. So um, let's talk about sort of policy and research before we get into the different psychedelics and what they could possibly treat and, and how you envision them helping, you know, um, you know, mental, emotional, spiritual health. But you know, where were we, let's say, in the 1950s, 1960s, um, before they were all classified as Schedule One drugs? And, and where are we now? Hmm. Well, so I guess in the 50s was when some American and British researchers like Gordon Wasson, um, Swan went to Oaxaca, Mexico, and met with Maria Sabina, who is a curandera in the uh, um, tradition and the Mazatec tradition um, and kind of introduced them to psychedelic spiritual mushroom context. Um, and I feel like that story is really important because often, you know, people talk about the psychedelic renaissance and it's starting in the research when you now the reality is indigenous communities have been working with a wide range of plant medicines mm -hmm. for millennia. 
um, and have, as the psychedelic renaissance has developed, have a lot of these communities have like suffered and kind of lost access to a lot of these medicines. So just really important to kind of be aware of all those relationships and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, almost to that end, it's worth going back even a little bit before the fifties and sixties to a long time ago to the Spanish inquisition Mm -hmm. actually. And that those are some of the earliest policies we can find globally criminalizing substances and they're criminalizing peyote, which was like Mm -hmm. this, you know, mystical traditions they were finding in the so-called new world and they were so scared vilifying this they you know felt like it's connecting to the devil and to spirit and these things so Mm. have knowing from even at that early stage these medicines were considered you know barbaric satanic you know and vilified and um but yeah so then sorry just just put that that's really important in in context and you know and then even in the early 20th century, um, that's really when the drug war first kind of started and the criminalization and vilification of different substances often associated with groups of people within the, you know, very kind of racist inspiration. Like the first drug laws in the U.S. were actually made around opium um, in response to an, a, a wave of Chinese immigration of folks working on the railroads, you know, mm-hmm. then um, marijuana was was moved to be criminalized and there you should read the, the most horrific language you know by people in government saying like marijuana is used by like to provide negroes to make white women want to sleep with that like these like really like the most horrific things and language you can imagine being used to justify these policies so i put all of that to say that really contributes to our mindset and stigma around what these substances are even if they're really not based at all in like science right because you know cannabis was used as medicine in the u.s in the 1800s you know that was normalized so but yeah, sorry, I'm, you know, there's a lot here. I'll try to keep fast forwarded a bit. Though, no, this is the- wonderful. Take your time. I just want to touch on. So it seems that there's this like racial assimilatory underpinning through psychedelic legislation, even if we date back to the Spaniard Inquisition sort of, you know, pillaging through South and Central America. And, and, and I think that probably plays a role in our current day. Is that correct? Absolutely. And this like even like later beyond the Spanish, the puritanical ethos, I think also has kind of factors into how we consider a lot of these substances that also have this more maybe liberatory effect or kind of bringing things to the surface that might be submerged and connecting to spirit, as you say, giving people individual the ability to make that connection directly. Um, So I think that's threatening to to a lot of folks. But yeah, in in the 50s and 60s, when this kind of got, you know, discovered by the white mainstream culture and written about in Time magazine. Um, and then, you know, the 60s and it kind of connected into culture and got more u- used on a, glo- a wider scale um, mm-hmm. that did trigger a, a backlash. Um, mm-hmm. And at that point, um, there's really a, also a desire of vilifying people who are most connected with these substances, which are the hippies at the time who are opposing the war. You know, mm-hmm. they're these really other, you know, it's just really interesting reading like the documentation. There's um, a recording of President Nixon speaking to his advisor, um, Haldeman, about literally like, yeah, we know we can't criminalize people for being black, but we can criminalize their common pleasures like marijuana and like and the hippies and like psychedelics. And it's also some comments about what what's with all the Jews trying to legalize marijuana and <laughs> like these mm-hmm. really 
um, just again, very pointed um, uh, conversations explaining that the strategy was not about the substances, but about the people um, trying to control the people who use those substances. Um, yeah. And, but before they were criminalized, um, research was starting to blossom in the U S in Prague and really just, you know, all in Canada um, in South America and Chile um, and as you know, but with the criminalization, that really put a big damper on the research. Um, something that's really interesting, though, is that MDMA is actually a newer substance. So it was um, kind of first distributed wide, more widely among therapists in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still legal at that point, And it was called Adam. Um, and it was used for couples therapy, for phobias, for all different things. Um, and then in the early 80s, um, someone thought to kind of mix it with some speed, call it ecstasy, rebrand it <laughs> and sell it in, in the Dallas and the club scene, basically. And it really skyrocketed. And that was right with as Reagan was, you know, amping up the war on drugs. So you know, immediately got pulled into that and got moved to be criminalized. Um, and that was actually when MAPS, my organization, was founded. My uh, our boss, Rick Doblin, who founded our organization, um, started MAPS 1985 when MDMA was first criminalized. Um, but first, he gathered a bunch of researchers and faith leaders and like political leaders to protest the scheduling, basically, and they could challenge it in the DEA court. And there was a two-year process, um, like basically challenging the scheduling. And the DEA judge agreed that MDMA didn't should not be in Schedule One. And then the head, the director, like the head of the DEA, rejected the ruling and said no, it stays. And that's when Maps was founded because Rick was wow. wanted to do the rigorous research that could not be dismissed, clinical research. Um, to demonstrate that MDMA and other substances do not belong there. Um, and I am grateful that even though he's really had this dedication to the, the research and developing MDMA through the FDA process, that he's also always been dedicated to ending the war on drugs and recognizing the need to do work outside of a medical context, also around education and harm reduction and decriminalization, mm-hmm. um, because that's also something that's missed more and more today as there are more like psychedelic mm-hmm. companies emerging. Yep. So maybe I'll take a, a breath there. <laughs> take a breath there. We're going to talk about harm reduction and education because I have those bullet points written down later. Um, man, I would have never known that uh, F, the uh, DEA story about the director because you uh, you know, in my mind, if a, if a judge rules, unless it's appealed, that a certain thing is is okay, then it's interesting that a person that's not in the court can overturn that. So there's some interesting things going on. Yeah, like it's like the, it's like a sub. It's a court. It's not like the same as a, another court would be. It's like mm-hmm. how military courts kind of operate under Understood. different things. Yep. I am. At, I think it's a DA administrative law judge that mm-hmm. was the court. If anyone wants to Google well, it, whoever set a the DEA up, whoever the set site. the DEA up did that on purpose. I'm I'm pretty sure, right? So there can always be a, a hierarchy instead yeah. of a yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The, um, and, the DEA's whole existence is really based on prohibition and it actually mm. emerged from before the Bureau for Alcohol Prohibition when that got, you know, they ended alcohol prohibition and a lot of the people from the Bureau 
moved to create this DEA. So what, what, what ended up becoming the DEA. So yeah, it's just interesting to think about that and even how the funding works for the DEA is that like according to enforcing drug laws, so they really have incentive to mm. um, continue drug laws instead of reduce harms. Man, I see this, this interesting thing in humanity. It's like we almost always have to have an enemy. We can't just focus on healing, you know, and it's, it's very interesting. Um, okay. Mm. So from that, let's get into act the actual different, uh, psychedelics and, and what, um, you know, the current research is telling you and people that are working at maps, they might be able to help, uh, heal or contribute healing to, um, based on sort of mental, emotional health stuff going on. Right. So we have MDMA that you brought up. We have psilocybin, LSD, DMT, which is a component of ayahuasca, um, which is something that's getting more attention these days now, but it's been around for eons. Um, mescaline, which is the uh, the um, psychedelic um, the psychedelic in peyote, and then uh, ketamine, which uh, is legal, right? And yeah, the other one and San Pedro, I San Pedro. Saying it's which I feel like is extra important to mention because, um, especially in the U.S., peyote is a very scarce resource it actually takes nine to ten years for each peyote button to grow um, yeah. and the native american church actually has legal rights to use peyote and mm -hmm. they really ask that non-native folks not working with this church do not um, engage with peyote and yeah. mescaline can be found in san pedro which grows much more free freely it's or those really tall kind of phallic looking yeah. <laughs> cacti you see all over so yeah. so i think it's important to, to know about yeah. san pedro in that context. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I mentioned peyote just because I live so close to the Navajo and Hopi reservations, which traditionally use peyote as part of their spiritual uh, ceremonies and different hogans and for different sort of rites of passages. Um, so I've had conversations with uh, Diné people about, you know, their experiences as much as they're willing to share. And so that's why that, th mm -hmm. that peyote comes to mind. But San Pedro, is, I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. So um, maybe let's start. Maybe we can go through these because I know a lot of my listeners are really curious about the clinical and therapeutic role these drugs can play, right? And so let's start with MDMA since it's the newest. And, um, you know, my background with MDMA is that I've read, you know, some, some studies and some anecdotal evidence about how this was used. I think you said in the seventies and eighties by therapists, usually in couples counseling. Um, and it started to get the name of like the love drug or like the, the glue, you know, um, of people. And I would love for you to speak uh, about, you know, what it was used for. And then it was sort of lumped into schedule one, you know, by the DEA. And then now what are we utilizing MDMA to study and what are the efficacies that are coming back from the research? Hmm. Yeah. So back then, as you pointed out, it was used most commonly from what I understand in couples therapy and with phobias, hmm. but also I think people were really using it in all different contexts. And what we're learning with a lot of this work is kind of addressing the root source of trauma, connecting to kind of spirituality in certain ways can really be healing for a wide range um, of things. Mm -hmm. But um, MDMA, uh, what our focus at MAPS has been is using MDMA assisted therapy to treat PTSD. Um, and we think MDMA works especially well for trauma um, because um, for a number of reasons that I can get into, but I'll say before I do get into that, that you know we've also researched it in other contexts as well. Um, there's a beautiful study with MDMA um, to see how it impacts social anxiety in autistic adults. Um, another study with MDMA um, associated with anxiety um, for patients experiencing anxiety from end of life 
um, from being diagnosed with terminal illnesses. Mm. Um, We also are doing really exciting couples studies again. So actually that is it's very unique because we received permission to give MDMA to the quote unquote healthy partner um, and their partner who does suffer from PTSD. So it's really exciting to be moving that forward because couples therapy, um, yeah, in general, to be recognizing the impact of working in a system to help um, heal even an individual, how important it is to be working with with the partner that way. Um, and in right. that context, we're also doing some group studies. We're working with the VA actually to develop some group studies and veterans with MDMA, but that would also be focused on trauma. Mm. Um, and yeah, maybe I can speak a bit about how MDMA therapy works and kind of and and like kind of that process, the experience of an MDMA Absolutely. therapy session. Absolutely, um, that would be beautiful. Cool. So yeah, and our MAPS protocol, um, first it's important that uh, to really build a good relationship and trust with the therapist. And in our protocol, we actually have two therapists for one person. Um, And you meet with a therapist three times before just answering questions, talking, getting to know each other, talking a bit about your story and a bit about your intention um, for the medicine um, portion. And then when you come in for your day with MDMA, um, you're in a very cozy room, like there's a couch with like pillows and blankets and you're given a blindfold and or, like, you know, eye mask is probably the better word, eye mask um, and, and, and headphones to listen to music. Um, and, you know, you're offered the medicine and invited to go inside and listen to the inner, your inner healing intelligence, which is this concept that we use. Um, asking people to really trust that what emerges from their body, from their psyche is what's right and to be open to it and curious. And it's really the therapist's role to provide a really safe container and support for them to be going through that process, but really not to lead the process, but to like kind of help nurture that inner healing intelligence leading, leading the process. So, um, you know, people often will kind of be lying there for maybe 40 minutes, an hour, waiting for the medicine to kick in. And we'll be listening to music with their blindfold on, uh, eye shades, sorry. I don't know why I'm saying and, and that. You might want to tell people why you're reframing that, because I know why you are, but do you want to explain to everyone why you keep correcting yourself from saying blindfold to eye covering? Thank you, yeah. Um, I think it's just, um, it's a different blindfold i think to me means someone like doing it to you to like keep you from seeing something mm. and an eye shade is something that's totally voluntary you know some not everyone wants to use it and on top of that, I appreciate this question because it's the opposite. It's to help you see more <laughs> instead of keeping you from seeing something. It's it's a blindfold to kind of see inside and, and be present inside to what's emerging. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it is really different concept. So that's why I know it's not the word that we use in our <laughs> in our context. But so thank you for asking me to um, explain that. But, yeah, so people are usually kind of in that space. And, you know, I've been really lucky to watch um, a lot of videos of these sessions because we record them just to kind of make sure therapists are adhering to protocol. Um, and in these sessions, people really have such a wide range of experience, first of all, like there isn't really just normal, you know, but a lot of people, some people are like totally still. Some people are moving, kind of dancing around. Some people, you know, laugh or cry. Or, and, but often there's a point after, you know, they're kind of inside 
that people will sit up and, and take their headphones off and start talking or processing or, you know, asking a question maybe. Um, and often what first emerges is maybe an early childhood trauma that, you know, sometimes is expected and sometimes isn't. Sometimes people are there, you know, from a trauma for the military and then realize that there was some earlier trauma that they had suppressed or hadn't really processed or realized how it impacted them. So it's this really beautiful process of like, you know, revisiting memories. And um, that's another, so one of the main reasons we think it's, we hypothesize it's so helpful for MD, um, for trauma is because trauma is, you know, PTSD is basically um, when you fossilize certain um, adaptive behaviors in your body that are no longer helpful, right? Like mm-hmm. some at the time they were protecting you and, and responding in a way that was helpful, but now maybe they're, they're not achieving that same end, but it's so painful often to revisit that site of trauma and reprocess it. And it's kind of stuck in our body physically, energetically in these ways. And um, so the MDMA um, it reduces the activation in your amygdala, which is what processes fear in your brain. So it kind of reduces your fear response. So it allows you to revisit these really traumatic memories. I mean, it's not easy by any stretch, but it's really different um, than it would be without the MDMA. Mm-hmm. And not just to revisit it, but then in that process, in a safe container and that's supported to actually reintegrate them differently so that those memories are stored in your body in a way that's not as harmful to you anymore. You know, and some people say like, oh, so you're like getting rid of the memories. And it's absolutely not that, you know, and, and you know, that's that's not what it is. But it's really this transition of how that memory sits in you and, and impacts you in a way that's um harmful. So you see people release that literally in their body and they'll dance or in their screen. Like there's so many ways of releasing and moving or sometimes in stillness and just processing it. But um, mm. that's really a lot of the crux of that work and then integrating those yes. um, realizations. So let's, I really would love you to expand on the integration process because often people will be like, well, I'll just get a bunch of MDMA and take it myself, you know? And I think um, one of the things you spoke to is, is the reason I'm such a proponent of this in a clinical therapeutic setting with to, you know, as MAPS is studying to psychotherapists, um, you know, sitting with you, because oftentimes you'll go to six or seven sessions before you even take MDMA, right, to sort of prepare you for the experience. And then after you have a period of X amount of sessions, basically, to help you reintegrate what you experience back into your life. So that way, you don't have to keep taking MDMA, your your normal is now integrated trauma. So that way it doesn't control you anymore, right? So can you speak exactly. to that integration process and the, the length, what happens in those sessions, how the therapists work with the client? Yes, and thank you so much for this question because it's really so essential. And people think of psychedelics as this magic you know, bullet. And while it has, they have very magical (laughs) abilities and can really help you see things in a flash that might've taken years. Otherwise you can, seeing it is very different than integrating it into your life and changing your life in a way that accords. So that's really the hard work. And that work often does not require much more psychedelic, you know, use. It requires taking that learning and figuring out how um, to shift your life. So that's why having a therapist or having 
um, peer groups of peer group support to help you integrate is so essential. You know, ayahuasca ceremonies are, uh, you know, often most indigenous plant medicine is done in, um, group context and in, you know, the, the Western world ayahuasca ceremony also is often done in groups. And I really appreciate that you in some contexts get to develop like a relationship with the rest of that group. And I see that as actually a really important part of integration as well, because, you know, look, I'm a social worker and believe deeply, deeply in therapy, but mm. ultimately I think in being integrated with your community and your friends is kind of the most holistic, helpful way. I mean, it's mm -hmm. both, right? Like yes. I also go to therapy. It's definitely not either or, right. um, but I think that part is really key. Um, when we think about integration that to think about audit in that expansive way and of course there's a lot of individual work in in the integration you know what feels grounding to you what helps you tap back to that place that you know um and there's you know different pra mindfulness practices yoga meditation art walking in nature and um, there's really it is a journey of like figuring it out for yourself so mm -hmm. unfortunately in that way it's not that easy you know it yep. requires intention and effort mm -hmm. Yeah, and the therapists are there basically to help with that intention and kind of sort of guide the effort. Um, exactly. you know, you brought up an interesting point that reminded me, um, I was down at a retreat, uh, last week in Phoenix, um, as an attendee, but I was also engaging in a discussion. And it was a group of 40 people from all over the country, basically very much talking about emotional, mental, relational healing. And, um, it came up in my mind that, you know, no trauma is experienced in a silo, meaning that you need other humans to experience trauma. If you're the only person on the planet, be really bored, but you probably wouldn't have a lot of trauma. You'd be really lonely, but you probably wouldn't have a lot of trauma, right? Um, therefore, it might be traumatic to be the only person on well, the planet, though. <laughs> 100%. Yeah. But, you know, we're thinking like, you know, like sort of esoterically yes, in that way, but you get what the idea is, right? And so it's just sort of to kind of compare, like, so therefore healing cannot be done in a vacuum either, right? We actually do need other humans. And I love how you bring Absolutely. up the community aspect because, you know, oftentimes, obviously, you have to set in setting, be in a safe space, you know, and, uh, but, but there's something beautiful about human beings congregating um sort of with the spiritual uh you know thing in mind of reconnecting with uh so something something greater out of themselves right um totally. and, and i know for instance like even when i've been in a group where people are being vulnerable and opening up about you know their struggles or childhood trauma or relationships or maybe some mistakes they've made in life um there is something so um incredibly cathartic about other people sharing that um, that that I, I feel better because uh, you feel less alone in those moments, right? Because you realize that we are all struggling with something on some level, right? Um, totally. And frankly, it's the most helpful to be hearing from folks that are more in your kind of having similar experiences to you. That's some of the, mo the best sources of strength um, mm -hmm. in that context. And I think group therapy and group work in general um, is really important for our times right now. Mm -hmm. As you say, we're all experiencing so much communal trauma between COVID and climate grief and right. so many levels of things. So we do need to come together and figure out how to be healing in, in communal contexts. And yep. I feel called, I don't know, to bring up this concept of men's groups. Have you heard of, about men group, men's group work? Y yes, indeed. I have. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I that's something I'm particularly inspired by these days in the world of, of group work um, mm -hmm. and seeing 
the beautiful spaces that men have created to come together and talk about vulnerabilities and emotions and things that there aren't many other spaces with other men kind of to be able to process these things. And I think that just so healing and powerful um, and something. Yeah, it's just and I'm seeing that integrated with psychedelic work too a bit, Mm -hmm. um, which is cool. And it's something actually worth maybe saying too that I've also seen some psychedelic ceremonies like that that are like men only with the energy that doesn't quite have an energy of like we're coming together to create this you know unique bond. I don't know how to explain, so, but it feels um, yeah, it feels like it really important to be in this looking towards this group work of how to kind of evolve as a species, I guess. Yeah. Although psychedelics have been around longer than we've been around. Um, I do feel like we are in sort of a revolutional state right now. Um, you know, the time is like primed for us to do this, um, intelligently and consciously, you know, and really utilize it to, to heal and not just run away from stuff. Um, so let's, let's move on to, to the next couple. So, um, I don't know if you want to group psilocybin and LSD together because they're similar, but also different. Um, but let, let's start with psilocybin because as most people know, magic mushrooms, you know, maybe some people have experience with it. Maybe some don't, but there's, you know, a lot of research going on. Uh, Mass specifically is doing a ton of research. So, um, Pausing the show for a quick second, y'all. If you could take two seconds out of your day while you pause the show right now and go leave Starve the Ego, Feed the Soul, a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts that helps out a ton and go to Spotify, or if you're already at Spotify, just open the show that you're listening to, click on the review section, leave us a five-star review. There's no written review on Spotify, but if you can just leave us a five-star review, that really helps the show grow, get into more ears out there and helps me do what I do and create more content and reach more people with these wonderful interviews and these episodes that we're putting out for all of you out there. So would really appreciate if you take two seconds out of your day, leave a review on both Apple and Spotify podcasts. It helps starve the ego, feed the soul out a ton, and you are much appreciated for doing so. And now back to the show. What have you read and what have you studied and in maps, like what is psilocybin being used to sort of treat and where do you envision it and how does it work into sort of psychedelic assisted therapy and even like our greater culture at large? Cool. So actually maps is not doing psilocybin research, but we do work, you know, because we're the biggest psychedelic organization, we work very closely with all the psychedelic researchers Mm. and, you know, on, on psilocybin reform and other contexts, but okay. um, psilocybin is right behind MDMA in terms of when we can expect to see FDA approval, which is super exciting um, in the next few years. Um, and it's used for depression mainly, but there is research in a variety of things. There's also um, been some really interesting research around psilocybin with like um, in faith leaders, for example, at Johns Hopkins and kind of really interesting um, exploratory spiritual um, studies. Um, there's a lot of psilocybin research also with people diagnosed with terminal illnesses and helping people um, kind of re-develop um, their relationship with death, which is mm-hmm. really powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are many companies as well that are developing um, psilocybin for a variety of different things that it's kind of in much earlier stages that we're kind of waiting to see emerge. Um, one thing that is an exciting indication that's being used both for psilocybin and MDMA, I forgot to mention, is for folks with eating disorders. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing some of that 
research emerging because that's new. Um, oh, and also both MDMA and psilocybin are being researched and to help people that are struggling with alcohol, um, problematic alcohol use, um, which I think will be very powerful to kind of revisit. And there actually was recently a ketamine um, study released that it was ketamine therapy was very effective in helping reduce um, alcohol use. It was in the UK, but that was exciting to see. Um, but psilocybin, you know, is exciting also because there's a lot of movement in the U.S. towards decriminalizing access to psilocybin, both it, just as psilocybin and in the context of other plant medicines. Um, you know, and it's really, you know, easy, people, it can grow, it can be cultivated in different contexts. And um, it's a really interesting medicine. And mm-hmm. I appreciate that mushrooms in general are becoming very like trendy right now you know even fashion week this year or from you know like literally mushrooms are everywhere and Mm -hmm. i think people are really appreciating that it's no coincidence that fungi that are you know connecting all of us underfoot and connect like helping all of our plants and everything exist are also things that could be helpful to us in some spiritual way. So mm-hmm. um, something that I think is really interesting about the psilocybin research that's different than the MDMA research is there's something called the mystical scale, uh, mystical experience scale um, that basically measures people's experience, mystical experience in a psychedelic journey. And with the psilocybin research, they found that people who had more mystical experiences had better outcomes um, treatment wise. We didn't find the same in MDMA, which is interesting. Like we found that people could have good experience even without this mystical experience. There wasn't a correlation. Um, so that's just interesting to like explore further. Hmm. Um, but psilocybin is definitely something to keep an eye on that as it's merging in like all different um, venues. But right now it's mainly being researched for depression and everything okay. else is pretty early stage. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and you asked about LSD and say there's also more minimal LSD research being done right now. MAPS actually did some LSD research a few years ago in Switzerland, um, also with people with diagnosed with terminal illness. Um, but, and I think some companies are trying to develop like non-psychoactive LSD and researching something around vision. Um, but uh, yeah, I actually think that's being moved forward. Mm. I mean, you know what? I won't even say that because I'm sure there's some companies that are moving it, but right now there isn't like any kind of big research yeah. happening with LSD, but definitely a lot with psilocybin, psilocybin and more and more every day. Yeah. I do hope that it does uh, happen with LSD too, because um, uh, there's a, a lab out of Australia. You, you probably are familiar with them. Um, and, uh, I, I saw, I listened to, um, the gentleman that is, runs the lab. He's like the PI talk about sort of the differences between LSD and psilocybin in the human brain. And they did an fMRI sort of cross scan on people that were administered a high dose of each. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people describe similarities within the spiritual experience or the trip or, you know, the journey that psilocybin or LSD sort of can, can help put you on. But the difference, at least scientifically, and this is just physically, is that, you know, when you're on psilocybin, um, there's a very specific part of the brain. I can't remember what, what it is that lights up, right? Very specific focus part on LSD. It's almost the entire brain. It's just like, 
on mm-hmm. you know but the, the brain scan i'm thinking of i mean there's i'm shink but you're there's definitely a certain part of the brain but both with psilocybin and lsd i know there's other there's a kind of an interconnectivity of the brain mm-hmm. imperial okay. college published some really cool research like with that kind of um, visualized that idea of like your brain literally talking to each other right. much more um okay. but yeah i mean there definitely we- are some different yeah well, I was just going to ask, what is the difference? Like, do you remember what the differences were between those two scans? Like, were there any noticeable um, from LSD and psilocybin? Um, you know what? I don't remember well okay. enough to, to speak yeah. to them. I'm sorry, but I would check That's out okay. on Imperials. Imperial definitely published the data. I know I'm like, you know, I might even have a picture of the two of them. No, no worries. <laughs> I'll, I'll throw a link to that. I'll find but, it. I was, just, I was just curious. So I guess yeah, if but we... I, if, I would say about LSD, one other piece that we have to mention is that yep. it literally lasts at least twice as long, if not more, than psilocybin. So okay. I think that's pretty much the number one reason it's not okay. being... Um, examined right now because we're trying to do it with therapy and it's really expensive and difficult mm-hmm. <laughs> for a therapist to have that long of a, a space with someone. Um, right. And it's also hard for the person in the journey, but I think I know it's been yeah. used very, you know, in, in therapy and I'm sure we will be developing that as stuff moves forward. Um, I know Mescaline also, you know, has lasts a bit longer and that a company called Journey Colab is developing mescaline as medicine. So we'll see. There's definitely going to be a lot emerging in the space. We're just at the very beginning right now. Now, I know you brought up that psilocybin is mainly being studied around depression or in in treating depression. Um, Do you know any of like the sort of uh, clinical research results so far is like what the efficacy is on on any of those studies? Like, Like, is it is it treating depression to a yeah. you know, high efficacious rate? What are we seeing? It's very, very effective. Um, I mean, just for context, you know, most of our psychiatric uh, medication for mental illness is not really effective at getting rid of the illness that just kind of help reduce symptoms a bit. Um, so it's really cool when we look at psychedelic research, it's kind of a whole new um ballpark right we're like actually talking about what percentage of people no longer even have this um, designation of, of ptsd or depression um so i know in the ptsd research we have over two-thirds of participants no longer qualify for having ptsd after the study when you know compared to around 50 percent of people who get um, prescribed zoloft or paxil still have ptsd but 50 percent reduce their symptoms so I don't know the exact stats and there's a lot of different research with um, psilocybin for depression. So there are a few different studies that will have different numbers. Mm-hmm. I know Compass Pathways recently released some data that was not, you know, it was still solid and showed that it worked, but not as exciting as some earlier research done by nonprofits. So I think it's also just interesting to look at, you know, the difference is how it works when there's more therapy and more support. If we get better results, then when we're like kind of trying to reduce the therapy and cost time. But when we reduce the cost, that also makes it more accessible for the patient. So of course there's mm. a lot of different things to balance. Um, but, but the, yeah. <laughs> okay. So um, let's, let's move on to DMT and ayahuasca and we can separate them or group them together because DMT is the psychoactive component of ayahuasca. Right. So um, are there any actual clinical studies on these two things or are they mostly just anecdotal based on you know history of humanity and different indigenous cultures using ayahuasca 
Yeah. So um, there is research. There's some interesting neuroimaging research with um, DMT, seeing kind of what's happening in the brain when people are having that DMT experience. Um, but I do think it's important that people understand that extracting DMT from ayahuasca, like it's a very different experience than an ayahuasca experience. You know, even though there might be some kind of similarities, also DMT experience is often very short and very kind of out there. And ayahuasca has like a lot more um, therapeutic um, impacts okay. because um yeah, right now there hasn't been research to my knowledge around just DMT for um there's there's some research with five MAO DMT, which maybe be what you're thinking of, which is something quite a bit diff a little different, but connected. Mm. Um that yeah, they're exploring that I think for cluster headaches, um and and for a few different other indications, also maybe depression. Um, but Ayahuasca, there's been some observational research um, seeing ayahuasca's impact on um, addiction, on PTSD, on depression. Um, and there are people trying to do clinical work with ayahuasca. It hasn't happened yet in the U.S., mm. um, but that's definitely kind of an ongoing conversation. And some people don't feel so comfortable taking ayahuasca through the FDA process. So some people, you know, it, it's just an interesting yep. Um, evolution of a, a conversation, but mm -hmm. that is definitely a conversation happening. But I would look more, you know, ayahuasca really is served often in these communal contexts that are quite different from um, clinical Western frameworks. So yeah. even in measuring um, how they help different indications, there's a lot out there and people write about their own experiences. But often, again, it's kind of this like holistic um, addressing the root source of, of things. Yeah, let's let's stay on ayahuasca for a bit because I know you're going to have an uh, opinion on this specific uh, topic. It's that uh, like Western colonialization and cultural appropriation when it comes to ayahuasca, right? Um, I lived in South America for a year and a half um, in Chile and Argentina, and then I spent some time in Bolivia and Peru, which are you know very much steeped in sort of Mayan Incan culture, um, and uh, you know what I've noticed at least in the last five years, specifically in the U.S is this sort of um, renaissance of U.S.-based US, US shamanism, right? And so you'll find a, a dude in California that calls himself Shaman John, right? And yes. Shaman John will lead a group retreat of usually, you know, 10 to 20 uh, affluent upper class, mostly white Americans on spiritual journeys. And I would, you know, be curious on your perspective of if you think this is sort of the way forward, what are the problems with this cultural appropriation? Um, how do you envision uh, cultures outside of the indigenous cultures integrating ayahuasca and you utilizing it to heal and not necessarily escapism? It's a really important question and a really difficult one. And yeah, you know, I live in LA and it's becoming so trendy um, in a lot of ways that feels very disconnected um, from culture or feels very appropriative. And I think one of the really tricky things, you know, but there are ceremonies, sometimes people will, you know, fly in a cundero from the, you know, an Amazonian tradition. And like, that's really beautiful effort to be really connected to source. But also there feels like a level of like, oh, we like flew in someone who came in with his authentic outfit to serve, you know, like that also feels like kind of a weird things a lot of the time. And I think it's interesting. There are a lot of more and more um, folks who 
are, you know, maybe American or maybe from South American countries, but maybe not indigenous who spend a lot of time learning in indigenous communities and have kind of taken this work of bridging, bridging these worlds. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's hard, you know, to say all is good, all, all is bad in that way. And it's really, um, a difficult process, but I think that, um, recognizing, I mean, people, many people have told me, um, who, whose families have worked with ayahuasca for generations have said, look, ayahuasca is a plant. It's trying to get out here. Like it, you know, it wants to help heal people. And look, that's not what everyone believes about it. But so I don't want to speak like that's what everyone, everyone says, but that is what some folks have told me. They've said, look, there's so many other plant medicines around the world that are kept secret in other communities. They're not meant to get out. <laughs> ayahuasca has this, this, um, journey, mm -hmm. but it's really hard for me to ignore the like constant um, harm I see in this globalization process, because then, you know, you're saying, OK, well, fine, go to go to the source. But then there's hugely negative impacts on tourism mm -hmm. going, you know, to different yep. communities and who people work with. And they're working with maybe the American there and giving them more money instead of, the, you know, there's just so many levels of harm that are occurring all around. And so I guess. When you ask like how I think about it, I, I would hope that there's just a lot of um, intention and respect and learning that goes in, into the creation of these spaces. And mm -hmm. if folks are, you know, a white shaman John that, you know, he has spent time learning with uh, teachers for a long time and really understands that work. And that teacher has said, you're ready, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, to do this work, um, and approaches it and allows people sitting in ceremony to really understand where the medicine comes from and, yep. and understand that context. But, you know, th that's just my recommendation. I'm certainly yep. not like, this is something we're all trying to work through. I don't think there is an easy answer at all. Um, yes. it's something that's, really comes up for me actually a lot in work I do in Israel and Palestine because um, there have been some really interesting ceremonies there where people, you know, integrate Hebrew prayers and Arabic prayers, which has like profound impacts, but that also feel like, but is this appropriating and changing the context? And there are plant medicines indigenous to that region. So, you know, there's just a lot, a lot that comes up, but I will yeah. say in a word that group, like I, I'm just kind of, seeing that ayahuasca is providing so much healing for so many people in this group context where they have support to be integrating it. So they're not off doing psychedelic on their own. Um, and I hope as we're moving to decriminalize these substances, like we're very co close in California, which is really exciting. And certain cities like Oakland have decriminalized, um, you know, and state of Oregon, um, that as this moves forward, we're going to have more serious conversations about impact and like, Where's the ayahuasca coming from? It's not sustainable to be shipping it from the Amazon. You know, like, can we grow it somewhere? Just bigger conversations about how there are harmful impacts and how to do it um, in different ways, I hope will be easier to have. Mm. Um, and are, what I, I know will be easier to have, I hope will be had <laughs> in, yeah. in the ways that they need to be discussed. Yeah. No, I think that's a beautiful point. I, I think, you know, obviously the facilitator of the spiritual experience does matter. And I, I appreciate you bringing up like, it's not the fact that this gentleman, you know, and this is a, a person I'm just making up, but is from the US or is of a certain ethnicity. It's that have they done the work to connect with the culture it comes from? And are they qualified to, you know, set 
like this up for someone and, and guide people on this journey. And I think the only person that can judge that is a person seeking the spiritual experience. And so my recommendation would be like, do vetting with who you're giving your money and time to, right? Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of people just look for the easiest way to do it. And yeah, that's not necessarily, that, that is, yeah, that's not necessarily going to give you the best experience, everybody, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important point. Like, yeah. think about it for a minute. And, you know, for the most part, the things that are the easiest accessible and right there advertising to you are maybe not the ones that are doing this kind of work in that same way. And I really think, on a deep level, no matter what, I mean, what you do in anything in life, but especially with medicine work, please, please trust your gut on the people. Like really like do your research, but also if they make you feel a little uncomfortable in any way, that is, will not be a good container for you to have an experience. You have to feel really safe and, 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 you know, trust that they're, you know, folks that you want to be in that process with. And I just, you know, hear so many stories of things going awry, um, you know, sexual assault occurring in ceremonies. So, which, you know, of course that happens. I'm not saying, you know, that will happen even if it can feel like everything feels right, that can still happen and it's mm. horrific. Um, but just saying to really try to listen and be very intentional about your choices that way. Well said. So that, that brings me actually in the segue of potential risk and negative effects of different psychedelics, right? Um, would you mind speaking on, you know, any of them that you've, you know, any, any come to mind, like, are there none, you know, what are the potential risks and, and, you know, the things we should sort of be aware of in using these things as they become legal in society as therapists or clinicians are able to administer them, you know, specifically speaking about MDMA, psilocybin, and, um, you know, the other ones we spoke about. So I'd say first and foremost, there is this kind of psychological risk of of having a difficult experience and not being in a supportive space to process it you know if you we say difficult is not the same as bad because if you have a difficult experience in a context with people you feel safe with and you can process and move through it it can be one of the most healing experiences of your life you know mm -hmm. but if you have that difficult experience in a place where you know, you're shutting it down, like you're having an early childhood memory at a rave, you know, sometimes a rave might be a great place. Maybe you're in a, you know, dancing state and processing it. Some another time you might say, no, and push it down. And as you push it down, that kind of is what can become a bad trip and can um, become really difficult and have long lasting impacts. So I think that's one of the first things I say, you had mentioned earlier, set and setting, right? So who you're with, where you are and your mindset and your intention going into the journey, because, you know, we have to have a lot of respect for these, these substances. They, um, they're really powerful and, um, they just because physiologically they can be safe doesn't mean that psychologically <laughs> they are always, if they're not kind of, if you're not in a place that you can um, be moving through it. Um, so that's really what I would say is a, a huge issue with, um, I think it's also important to think about mixing different substances just on that term of just knowing what you're doing. It's, you know, of course, um, physiologically, it might be okay with some of those, but, you know, it's worth bringing up something like you didn't mention ketamine, but ketamine is really popular these days um, recreationally. And people don't really recognize that it's not safe to mix with 
alcohol, for example. And I know people do that commonly, but then can have bad experiences. And it's just really important to research whenever you're mixing any kind of substances and drugs to know mm-hmm. what you're doing and how you're taking them because they can have really much more harmful impacts than you might anticipate. Um, yep. And with MDMA, especially one of the most important things to do is test your substances. You can go on dancesafe.org, makes um, drug checking kits and there's substance analysis. There's many other places you can find that too. Um, and basically when you're, when drugs aren't legal and you're buying things off the black market, you, there's no way to really understand what you're taking. So mm-hmm. the biggest danger is that there could be fentanyl in your MDMA, you know, and MDMA is often cut with a lot of other substances. So um, in our medical context, it's very safe, but when people are using it outside of that context, um, it's really important that they test that test the substances. Um, and, you know, and that goes for ketamine, of course, too, and mm-hmm. other substances like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that would be kind of the main uh, main things. And and just dose is really important as well. Um, you can always take more, can't take less, like no, no rush on that. And I think it's really important to like move it in that intentional way. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, that's wonderful. Thank you for speaking on all that. So you brought up ketamine. I know I accidentally skipped over that. Um, I have a couple of, uh, personal experiences with ketamine. I haven't used it yet, although I'm very interested in trying it. There's legal clinics popping up all over the place. There's two here where I live, uh, a couple down in Sedona. Um, I have two uh, close friends of mine. Um, this is at various times in their life. They had, they were experiencing um, like severe depression uh, to the point where the suicidal ideation was like consistent. And so both of their partners um, and them, uh, you know, they, these both of these friends of mine had been on a bunch of different um, antipsychotics, antidepressants most of their life. You know, this sort of pharmacological cocktail that some psychiatrist put them on. And they had been both working on separate friends, working on sort of weaning themselves off. Um, both had experiences, experienced loss, severe loss that kind of set them back in a stage of, of depression and anxiety. And both of them at different times uh, went to a ketamine clinic. And uh, literally within one to two sessions of using ketamine, something changed. You know, um, which which is incredible to me because a lot of the drugs we're talking about um, don't really uh, it doesn't seem to be an instantaneous sort of change, meaning that like you wouldn't really use them in a setting when someone's, uh, you know, suicidal or experiencing suicidal ideation. Right now with ketamine, it, it seems to be a little different where potentially it could be used to bring someone back down to a state of sort of wanting to be wanting to exist to where they can go back to therapy. They can, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, um, experience, you know, something with psilocybin or MDMA so that way can, they can sort of heal or get back to a sense of self-worth and self-love. Um, so it seems almost like ketamine has a, has a role in sort of emergency medicine in a way, right? Absolutely. Um, can you speak upon any of the research around ketamine, what it's sort of being studied around, um, you know, and yeah, and tell me what you know. Yeah, no, um, thank you for that question and the framing. It's ketamine is really interesting because it's been legally used in medicine for years already. Um, it's actually one of the, not one of the, it's the safest anesthetic. So it has no contraindications like when there's other 
anyway, it's, it's very commonly used. It's used for children. It's used for pain around the world. So I think one of the reasons um, it was it's used um, in the suicidal context is because it was in hospital and ER settings. And it was kind of like that was what was there to be administered. And there is research showing um, that it, re- it reduces suicidality for like three days or something. But what it d- didn't show was that it helped in um, long term reduction. And so I think that is a bit different with like MDMA or psilocybin work. That's the therapy and integration and longer term, because that research with the ketamine was just injection ketamine. It was not therapy. So I think that's the other really important thing of note for listeners that we are seeing all these ketamine clinics pop up everywhere, which is exciting. But the truth is most of them are not therapy clinics. Most of them um, are people who are not trained at all as therapists. They'll give you, shoot you up with some ketamine, let, let you, you know, and, and I don't mean to speak like that because it really helps a lot of people in pain and that's right. wonderful. Right. But um, I know that it can help a lot more for people who are suffering when there's therapy involved in it. Mm-hmm. And there's only the beginnings of therapy research with ketamine. Um, there's a book called The Ketamine Papers that's been written, but we're needing to kind of see more exploration into what ketamine therapy is mm-hmm. is about. There was this recent ketamine um, study published that I was so excited. It was like 85% of people who had um, were suffering with alcohol addiction, like no longer caught, like it was a huge reduction. I, I haven't read the whole paper yet. I just saw it yesterday and was so thrilled because I've been wanting more um, data around ketamine. I think your question about why also like suicidality first and kind of grounding ketamine is really helpful for kind of just calming the nervous system and energy. And um, I think that's just really needed sometimes when people are in that heightened of a state, it just can really help to just feel good for a fucking second. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm sad to say that I was with someone um in, in a really difficult suicidal state recently who just went to have a ketamine treatment. It was first of all, so hard for her to find somewhere with therapy. So she went somewhere where they just literally shit. It was like so clinical, just shot her up, you know, but she was like, I felt so good for that time, you know, but yeah. then she, it's still hard to integrate. So I'm glad your friend had that immediate impact. And for, you know, it's really different for everyone. It's just really yep. important to remember that because with ketamine, it often like people, the sessions are actually like six to eight sessions often yep. because it can often take longer, but look with insurance coverage and different things, it's really difficult and expensive in different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's tricky, but I will say like kind of to round out that spiel for listeners, you know, people reach out to me all the time wanting psychedelic therapy access, you know, and I'll say we're close to FDA approval. And in the meantime, I do really recommend looking out for ketamine therapists, not yes. ketamine clinics, just clinics, but yep. places where there's therapeutic support, because I think that's the closest you're going to get right now. And if there's beautiful, beautiful work being done that way, that maybe could even be more helpful. Um, and actually, just most of the MAPS MDMA therapists who work on our studies have opened ketamine clinics in their cities, right? So they're like recognizing a lot of these ketamine therapy clinics are going to then start taking, you know, mushrooms and MDMA after that's approved by the FDA also. Yeah, the one thing with the with the ketamine therapy clinics is insurance coverage, right? 
Um, and so I will, I will say with a caveat, both of these two friends were working with psycho or psychiatrists through their insurance company. So they were in therapy. Um, they, they, they were administered ketamine in a clinical setting. So there was no therapist there presently, but it brought them back down to a baseline level. So that way the next day they did go to therapy or did see their psychiatrist and did go through like CBT or cognitive behavioral thought. And that was really what helped, you know, because it allowed them to sort of have enough self-belief that like, you know, I'm here, I want to stick around and I, I want to heal versus like the sort of existential dread of like, I, you know, I, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, or that there's like no way forward. Like there's, there's no way forward. this great um, definition of depression as of the inability to think creatively about any way things could be better or different. Amen. And I, I really think psychedelics give that insight, even if for a minute, seeing another way forward. And, you know, the integration is the making that happen, which is the hard part. But once you see that it's possible, I, I hope that hope can really do a lot to help people move forward. I love that. Okay. So let's talk about changing the stigma around psychedelics, right? Um, there's a whole entire generation that was brought up through around the Reagan administration, um, that when they ever hear the word LSD or magic mushrooms or any of this stuff, there's like this blank stare and I'm generalizing, but on their face of like, that is the devil, right? I mean, people are being possessed by these plant medicines and you know, they're bad for you. They're going to do bad things to you. And you know, obviously as that generation, those generations age and millennial, you know, the younger generations sort of come into higher positions of power and governance and, and in local communities, um, you know, we, we still will have to work with sort of archaic dogmatic um, traditional outlooks on uh, you know, these plant medicines in, in our Western society. You know, you, you talk about other societies they don't have a problem with it because it's been part of their culture for so long in ours, you know, since we're such a congregation of immigrants, we have different people with all these different value systems and structures and specifically with Christianity's influence in uh, you know, the traditions in America. How do we start changing the stigma? You know, and I know it's through education, but like, what are you working on? What are the, the advocacy groups you are a part of or you see sort of reaching out to try to educate the public about the healing properties of these mm -hmm. of these plant medicines and, and making people less scared? Yeah. Well, that's just such important work and work I'm grateful that MAPS really does prioritize with our education and with a bunch of different strategies. Um What's coming up for me first is when you mentioned Christianity and I saw my bookshelf. Have you heard of this book, The Immortality Key? No. By Brian Rescu. It's a really interesting examination inside of some in kind of early Christianity's relationship with different psychoactive substances. So I think on some level for me, not on some level, on a big level, um, working with different faith communities is one way of really approaching stigma where there's this idea of a good and evil and there's communities that there's a lot of trust. Um, and there's actually now an organization called Ligari that does work um, expanding Christian psychedelic space. So I think that's really exciting. Um, I am Jewish and I co-founded the Jewish Psychedelic Summit, and that's been really exciting for me as well to work with different rabbis and kind of well-respected people across the Jewish community speaking openly about psychedelics. It's actually been very helpful immediately in, in stigma. Like I've seen it, it's given people space. They've told me they haven't felt comfortable speaking openly before the conference, for example, but they saw these other people speaking and they felt comfortable coming 
moving forward. Um, and so kind of just creating these frameworks to allow people to have conversations in spaces where they wouldn't expect, I think is really important. And I think the religious space is one of the very important um, spaces to examine because first of all, psychedelics do have those mystical spiritual experiences. So I feel like there's also opportunity for a big rift there. Um, but so I think showing that it doesn't have to be a rift and there are ways that it can also work um, with with our ancient traditions, um, I think will be very helpful on that. I mean, like with the stigma part, for me, one of my main messages, because I work with communities and activists around the world, um, which I'm so lucky, one of you know the coolest parts of my job to me. And what we always talk about at first is actually learning the history of your culture in your land of your religion, because there's probably plant medicines and psychedelics involved, probably cannabis even, you know? And I think that is a really important baseline for the destigmatization, like first saying, wait, this isn't some new crazy thing. This is actually something that's been around that, you know, colonization or number of things have erased. Um, and so that is like the basic framework is really helpful. Then when that's coming in, you know, we also have all of this research emerging. And I have found that having solid research is, you know, so, so huge for destigmatizing things because another big community we need on our side besides faith leaders, definitely the medical community. Yes. Um, and, you know, that has taken a little bit longer. There's uh, can be a little slow to change sometimes, but the research is undeniable. And now, you know, this year, the media keeps declaring the year 2021 that psychedelics became mainstream. And mm. it really has been exciting to see as our data continues to be published that the, the community is very excited and open. Mm. So I think really working with medical community to talk about the research is really helpful. Um, yep. I have a, uh, so the next guest on the show after you, after your episode launches will be my really close friend, Dr. Beth Dupree. She is a world-renowned breast cancer surgeon um, who's, mm -hmm. who's since just left her position as medical director at um, one of the best facilities in, in Sedona, Arizona. And people, fl women fly from all over the world to be treated by her. Um, she's an incredible uh, surgeon, but also uh, an integrative healer. Like she has this entire program of how uh, she can cut the cancer out of you, but it's going to come back unless you heal the reason it got there, right? Um, and her new endeavor, and, and Beth, I'm throwing you a shout out here because we're gonna chat all about this, is um, she left her position uh, because she's focusing on using psychedelics. And yeah, she is awesome. was one of the first uh, inductees to the school in San Francisco, uh, SIS. Yeah, um, CIS. CIS, uh, that, that one. Um, so like, <laughs> it's like Naropa and that score, kind of the ones leading, right? And so she's an MD. Get She just finished the, eight, the first wave of the eight month cert that I think MAPS is involved with, right? Um, uh, to, to basically, you know, be able to have a certification to administer psychedelics in, in certain settings. And, and she's specifically interested in end of life care, terminally ill patients, like Beautiful. cancer patients that have a terminal diagnosis you brought up. Um, and, uh, you know, she is, uh, you know, comes from a traditional conservative background, was raised in Pennsylvania, you know, um, and, and it's just to see her growth and, and her openness into accepting, you know, this form of plant medicine and utilizing it in Western practice is just a testament to, uh, opening our minds, you know, as Michael Pollins says, you know, in his book. And, and I think it's, it's, it's just such a, a brilliant thing to touch on because, you know, she's a prime example of the medical community looking at this logically and not um, with sort of any sort of archaic dogma because we were raised, she's like, wait a minute, this can help people heal, you know? 
And why would I not be open to studying and integrating this as a healer? Because she's a healer first, uh, a surgeon second. You know, she always leads with that. And um, I'm going to throw a little plug for her book, um, which is called uh, A Healing Journey, which is basically her her own journey from going through medical school to learning all this stuff in Western medicine about pharma, uh, pharmacology and then wondering why, where where is the diet? Where's the exercise? Where are these other ways that we can be healthy human beings spiritually, mentally, emotionally? Because there, there's a lot more to healing than just going to surgery, right? Or getting uh, getting something cut out of you. And I think that, you know, psychedelics are certainly is this revolution is the, is the news is using it. You know, the revolution of psychedelics like um, is playing a role in that. And so absolutely, we need the medical community. Um, and obviously they will, they will come as more research comes out because, you know, most physicians, they want to see the data, you know, and rightfully so. That's a very scientific. Um, but in order to see the data, the government and the funding has to be there to fund the research. And that has traditionally been the issue with psychedelics is that they've been sort of criminalized so much that we can't even research them and sort of enter maps into the scene, right? Yeah, and actually today it was a very exciting day because the NIH, the National Institute of Health, which funds most research that hasn't funded um, any research for, you know, to benefit, to show the benefit of psychedelic, had a conference today about psychedelic research, encouraging people to apply for grants. And they did just earlier this year give their first grant which, you know what, I'm glad because I forgot to say this for psilocybin. It's for psilocybin research for smoking cessation. Such a cool study. Mm-hmm. Um, with Dr. Matt Hopkins at Hopkins. Um, and it's just a beautiful study that they have a pilot study before and they're following up on it. And it, you know, sm- people quitting smoking is something that is very difficult in the mental health world, you know. And so that psilocybin therapy had such a dramatic impact was very exciting and kind of showed it's interesting to me that that's the first thing that NIH um, awarded. But, you know, tobacco kills more drugs than all other drugs combined. So. I do think that's it's particularly fascinating. And I also love that they gave a grant for um, s- substance use because I know it's a bit tricky. Sometimes people are like, what, you want to give one drug for another drug? But, you know, psychedelic therapy can be very helpful for re- renegotiating relationships with substances. Um, mm. We didn't even, we didn't touch on Iboga and Ibogaine, which is, um, you know, Iboga is a West African root bark that is used by the Bwiti in a spiritual ceremony and has also been used um, in like the Western world for treating people with opiate addiction. Um, and that's just a really like, there's just, there's so much happening. So <laughs> what a wonderful time to be alive. Um, Indeed. You know, we, we're, we obviously have a lot of things going in different directions in society, our culture and the world at large. But I do think that um, there's some very good things happening and on the horizon for humanity as a whole. And I think this is the research around psychedelics and around therapy and around mental, emotional, you know, trauma healing is, is growing, you know? Um, so before we, before we end, I'd love to ask you, you know, for people that not only want to learn more, but like maybe go to, have an experience with psychedelic assisted therapy is that even available to the general public in certain states in certain areas now is it something where you actually have to be part of a study you know if listeners want to get involved somehow where do they go i'm just reflecting on how you know my almost eight years at maps how i'm grateful my my answer to that question has been able to change so much because now there really are a lot more um, opportunities I'd say, yeah, first, if you're wanting to stay local, look for ketamine therapy clinics. So 
they can be really expensive. And, you know, honestly, what kills me is a lot of what I'm going to say, um, especially on the legal front, um, is really costly. So I, I, that's, you know, part of the reason MAPS is really working to get insurance coverage and make sure our medicine is accessible. But I will say that um, there, you know, certain cities um, have decriminalized plant medicine. So it's, there's a kind of gray gray area space that um, where some organizations are able to operate a bit more in the light, which feels different, um, you know, but I can't say I could recommend because it's still federally illegal in the Mm -hmm. U.S. Um, But there are other countries um, where ayahuasca retreats are legal um, and, you know, so there's psilocybin retreats in Jamaica, um, in the Netherlands, there are truffle retreats. So there are definitely places around the world and more and more every day, Costa Rica, where there are all different sorts of legal or gray area yeah. um, opportunities. And um, yeah, I would really, again, kind of what we were saying earlier, go build at the speed of trust, you know, ask people you trust, um, research things, um, see what feels in alignment. Um, because, you know, I am working towards decriminalization and legalization so we can really have better senses of where places that we, you know, can trust. Um, but I am happy to say that now there are at least a few places that definitely right. exist that that's possible. Yeah. Thank you for saying that in, in sort of the, the legal operations you can actually speak to, um, you know, and, and specifically the financial thing, you know, hopefully, and I know this is probably probably some of maps' work is to make this, you know, get this covered by insurance so people can afford it, you know, because a lot of times going to a retreat in Costa Rica or Jamaica is really only the elite, more wealthier, affluent parts of society can can do that. And and wow. certainly uh, all of us are searching for spiritual connectivity and healing. Um, you know, I grew up in a, in a low-income Hispanic family in the Barrios of Tucson, Arizona, and, and, you know, I wouldn't have been able to afford, you know, a ketamine treatment, you know, um, when I was younger, right? Um, now, thankfully, I have the means to do that. But I think that, you know, the, the brilliant work that you all are doing at MAPS and other organizations like MAPS is hopefully, um, you know, going to make this more accessible to the public at large, which is incredible, you know, incredible work. Thank you. And thank you for hosting such really fascinating and important um, conversations on your podcast. Thank you so much, Natalie. It's it's been a pleasure to have you. I'm I'm so glad we actually you know got to connect and, and have you on. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be a, a large response for this episode because so many people have been asking me to like, like having someone on for maps, you know. Um, and and yes. so I really appreciate you uh, being the pallbearer and and coming on and, and answering questions and sharing your story. It was so fun and an honor. Thank you so much for having me. I really want to ask all of you listeners out there, if you could take a couple seconds, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star written review that really helps get the podcast in more eyes, in more ears, um, and just really helps podcasts grow in in every aspect possible. So um, I would really appreciate it if you could pause it, go leave us a five-star written review on Apple, subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts, and turn notifications on so you get notified whenever we launch a new episode.